Thank you for listening to the Matt's Movie Reviews podcast, available on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, and Stitcher. Also, please follow Matt's Movie Reviews on Facebook, YouTube, Parlor, and Instagram. And of course, be sure to visit www.mattsmoviereviews.net for the latest reviews, top 10 lists, and more. Now, on to the show. Right, I just want to say one thing first. Posers must die! We're out of our minds. We were kind of crazy. We were just kids. Kids run amok. It was scary and it was dark. It's this outlet for angst. I'm Alex Skolnick, born and raised in Berkeley, California. Hey, I'm James Hetfield from Metallica. This is the music you don't want your parents to hear. Gary Hall, David Ellison, bassist for Megadeth. I don't need to say my name. Everybody watching this knows who I am. <laughs> we're doing it for chicks and beer. And I didn't drink. My name's Chuck Billy. Grew up in Dublin, California. And the pits were violent as hell. Hello and welcome to the Matt's Movie Reviews Podcast. I am your host, Matthew Perkovich, and this is episode number 282. Out now on digital and DVD is Murder in the Front Row, a documentary that tells the story of the early 1980s thrash metal movement that began in the San Francisco Bay Area. Featuring the likes of Metallica, Megadeth, Slayer, Exodus and more, Murder in the Front Row is a head-banging, riff-heavy, guitar-shredding exploration into a monumental movement in the history of heavy metal. Joining me now on the Matt's Movie Reviews podcast is the director, Adam Dubbin. Adam, I thank you very much for joining me on the podcast. Yes, thank you, Matt. It's nice to speak to you. And like, likewise. Yeah, and good to, hear, good to be on your program. Uh, I really like your reviews, so thank you. Oh, well, thank you very much. I really like your movie, and that's I just had to reach out to you as soon as I watched this. I'm a huge fan of metal, uh, particularly thrash metal. Um, mm-hmm. Came across the movie on Amazon Prime, absolutely loved it. Did some research into it. You have a very interest, interesting history. You're a New Yorker, um, NYU mm-hmm. graduate. Yeah. You really, your claim, the, the early claim to fame really was working mm-hmm. on music videos. So you had the Beastie Boys videos. Um, mm-hmm. You were part of that scene that Rick Rubin was establishing at that time. So I've got to ask, the interesting Bay Area thrash, where did that come from? Were you always a thrash metal head when, even uh, back then in the early New York days? Yes. I, I mean, I... I, I always enjoyed um, like hard rock and heavy metal music, uh, but in those early days the, of the rap scene, sort of wh- while the Bay Area thrash scene was getting going, in um, I was in New York and we were sort of aware of it, but we, we were much more involved in the uh, rap scene that was emerging in New York City. And so that was really what was foremost in our minds. And um, so I was, as you point out, yes, I I was um, a roommate of Rick Rubin and uh, only, you know, then and now still a friend and um, wound up working with him on a lot of different um, productions that that he was doing. And, you know, he would he would work with various groups and sometimes I would get to do music videos. And um, so it it was sort of a very uh, cool time to kind of be around all that stuff. So I, I think I understood scenes very well. I understood what it took to make a scene happen. Um, I just came to the Bay area scene later. And of course, um, you know, this is a very San Francisco Bay area based movie, but, um, I'm a, I'm a Brooklyn, uh, born and bred filmmaker myself. So, uh, maybe it took an outsider's perspective to see this, uh, story the way, uh, it needed to be told in this case. When it comes to that area of San Francisco and 
you know, we're talking about places like Berkeley, etc. You know, when mm-hmm. people hear these words, hear these locations, like the uninitiated, they think, you know, psychedelic rock and uh, mm-hmm. when it comes to Berkeley, jazz and stuff like that. Um, but it became the scene for not only like heavy thrash metal, but it was also kind of like a really really kind of popular hardcore punk kind of scene down there as well. How did that environment really create such aggressive music like that? Well, you know, I I think you've hit on something exactly. Whereas uh, the home, you know, Berkeley and and the Bay area before being a home to thrash metal was also a home to um, psychedelic rock and jazz and uh, the beat poets and, uh, you know, all kinds of, you know, types of scenes, music, words, whatever, that, that would be seen as, you know, on the, the edge in, in other places and, and in the Bay Area, it was accepted. So I think that's what was so interesting about this story was that the, um, the Bay Area itself is actually a very, like, a fertile ground for, you know, exploring like new musical ideas so maybe it's not so far-fetched that that this heavy music kind of took off there where it didn't take off in los angeles in the same way because something else was happening there Mm -hmm. but in the bay area it found a home and uh you know one of my favorite quotes in the movie is gary holt uh of exodus and slayer when he says you know he's talking about all these bands that would then come and play in the Bay Area. And he was saying that, well, if your own area wasn't welcoming of your type of music, we would be. And uh, that was one of the things. Exodus themselves became sort of the ambassadors of the area. You know, Metallica kind of moved through the area. Um, Yeah, they lived there, but they moved through very quickly because they were kind of conquering the world. But Exodus was like the hometown heroes of the Bay Area scene um, then and, and now, actually. What I really love about your documentary is that, you know, as a, as a myself as a film critic and, a, and like an avid heavy metal fan, I watch like any document, metal documentary, I get my hands on it. And a lot of them follow that kind of behind the music formula, it focuses mm. on the scandal and the, the, all that kind of stuff, you know. Um, mm-hmm. Your documentary, what's really cool about it is that you got, it's a movie uh, about these thrash metal guys in their late 50s looking back to their time when they were practically kids, like everyone forgets like these, like these guys, like 17, 18, 19 years old, when they were releasing their first albums, there's Mm -hmm. a humanity behind it. Um, People in that scene have died. People gave themselves, Mm -hmm. people sacrificed. How important was it to you to really tap into that element and make that shine in your film? Yeah. Well, uh, thank you because that, that really was the, the, uh, the heart of what I was trying to get at. Um, I, you know, as I approached this, this documentary, um, I, I approached it in a way I, I never would do films that are like, uh, behind the music kind of things. I'm not interested in the, in salacious stuff. And I, and I told this to the people I was coming to interview that, that look, I'm not here to get like stories about, about this other kind of salacious stuff. Cause the real centerpiece of everything is always the music. Mm. And so I wanted to find out like who these people were and, you know, who were so passionate. Um, w- look, when they were pursuing this music in like the early 1980s, commercial success was the furthest thing away. Um, 
they're very uh, obviously if you can play this kind of music you're you're you know a good player in a certain way you have t good technical skills if you wanted to play commercially and make money you'd probably be playing some other kind of music you wouldn't be playing thrash metal yeah. so it really is is a deep love of the music that that kept this small group of people together and supporting it and so i, I yeah I'm, I'm not really that interested in in all the other stuff. And I, and I, what I found actually in making the film is nobody else was that interested in it either. Yeah. They were interested in stories about the music and how that happened. And yeah, sure. There was, you know, I mean, there's certainly drinking going on and there's some other things, but you know, it's tangential. It's, it, it's, it's not essential to it. I, I, I think if I was making a documentary, maybe about like the, um, you know, if you make a documentary, let's say about a band like Guns N' Roses or Aerosmith, it seems like the, the, the drugs aspect of it is, I guess, more inherent because it's actually in the lyrical content mm -hmm. of what's going on. But it's not so much in the, in the heavy metal. The metal was much more about, um, you know, kind of either sort of having good time in a way and, and enjoying life or about like injustice or, you know, kind of fantasies about like, you know, kind of other worlds and things like that. And, um, you know, I just followed the, the, the feel of it and, and seemed to have gotten that into the film. And, and it, it was definitely responded to by the people I interviewed. So that was, that was good. That's what we got there. When I was watching the film, I was just so incredibly impressed with the number of um, people you got on camera uh, to talk about mm -hmm. it. Because, like, some documentaries might have one or two people of note and then like the roadie from like 1986 uh, you know metallica <laughs> aussie tour kind of thing you know this one this documentary's got everyone and i mean when yeah. i mean everyone i mean everyone um mm -hmm. logistically speaking how difficult was it to get everyone on camera that way especially considering that a lot of guys who were based in the bay area might not be there anymore i know um for example, Dave Mustaine is now in, I think, mm. Arizona and, like, other people mm -hmm. all over the world, and they tour in all the time constantly as well. Um, how hard was it to, to get people sit down? Um, on, they're willing, but it's just about – it's always about that time, isn't it? Finding the time to get it done, yep. get them to sit down and get it on camera. Well, that's a good point. It, so, you know, the the story, Murder in the Front Row, of the documentary actually comes from a book of the same name, um, and it was – it was written, although it's more photographs than it is text, mm. by uh, Brian Liu and Harold Oyman, and and they were like original scenesters. You know, they were they were guys that were there when like Metallica came to town in 1982, and they were there. You know, of course they lived there, so they were there before. So they were like the original fans. So what I did was I wanted that voice to be in there just as strongly as as Metallica's voice, let's say. So I started by interviewing those early fans and the people who were you know, who helped build the scene. And like, there's like Mark DeVito, the guy who did like a lot of, um, artwork and flyers. And, uh, cause this is what makes a scene is you, you sort of need all that support. It's not, it's not even just having the musicians. So after I got a bunch of, uh, those people who are in the scene, um, I, that's when I started reaching out to, you know, what we would call rock stars, musicians. And the first ones to sit were um, Slayer. And really the first one was Gary Holt because Gary Holt's still part of the scene. And he, you know, he feels that. I mean, he lives outside the Bay Area now, not, not you know, that far, but I mean, he lives outside of it. And, um, but he's still a part of it. Exodus is still a, a part of that. And so, you know, once I, I got Slayer, it's just sort of, you know, we went down the line and, and I, what 
started to come out, you could tell people were talking to each other who were being interviewed, was that they would talk to each other and say, yeah, these guys are good guys. They're telling the story the right way. So by sort of doing the approach that we did, um, good word kind of, you know, uh, kept rolling along for us and, you know, snowballing and getting more and more people. Now, I've been fortunate to have worked with Metallica for now almost 30 years. Mm -hmm. And so I was, you know, pretty certain they would, they would sit for me. Um, but it just, you just have to work out the timing with those guys. It's obviously Metallica is busy. And so, um, I was, I was very uh, grateful that they, uh, gave me time. And in this case, I, I went to their, uh, their week long stay in Mexico city where they played three sold out shows. And, um, and we found the time in there. Um, you know, Mustaine was the one that I, I was, you know, I really wanted to interview him. Um, I had no relationship with him. I'd never met him before. And, um, I'm fortunate that, you know, he was one of the last ones that we got, one, certainly one of the later ones. And I'm very gr glad that he decided to sit for us. But that was only because he heard that we were doing, you know, this project the right way. Um, you know, I, I think a lot of uh, I'm not a I'm not a journalist. I'm not a music journalist. I'm, I'm a, a documentarian. And I think sometimes when journalists interview him, you know, they, they, they pose a question in a way that they look to, to kind of bait him into you know, getting riled up a little yeah. bit and giving some kind of answer that then gets them a headline. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm totally not into that. I mean, I, I just, I really wanted to hear about his music. Um, he's been very open about his drug abuse, but I, I, I was not there to talk about that. Um, he's talked about, you know, there's the whole thing about getting, uh, 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 kicked out of Metallica. And to me, that's not, it's been told and, I, and I'm not very interested in that. What I am interested in is everything that Dave Mustaine did after he was kicked out of Metallica, which is amazing what he did with, with starting, you know, from scratch, just starting Megadeth. And, um, and of course he took Megadeth right when it was beginning, right up to the Bay area with Kerry King intact. So it's sort of an amazing story. Um, and and that's what I wanted to tell, and, and I was very happy that Dave, you know, sat for me as as well as David Ellison, who was just great to talk to. So those guys are really original, you know, thrash metal, um, you know, creators, and uh, uh, very lucky to have them in the documentary. I mentioned before the different bands are associated, and you mentioned just numerous names there, these legendary kind of figures. In the end mm -hmm. of watching the documentary, uh, primarily came away from this movie being about two bands especially, Exodus and Metallica. You had the one band that kind of started mm -hmm. the scene and the other one who the other band that transcended it. And the link mm -hmm. between the both of them is Kirk Hammett. And yes. the interesting thing about him is that in a band like Metallica, we have big personalities like James Hetfield and Lars Ulrich. People can get lost in that mix, and I think Kirk Hammett was like that. But it, to me, it seems, and I, I was wondering if you agree with this as well, he was such an important figure in that time because he was there doing stuff before Metallica even came on the scene. They came from another part of Los Angeles. How important uh, Adam was Kirk in the formation of the thrash metal movement in the early 80s? Yes, that is a great point, and I'm glad you brought it up because um – I, I had numerous people as I as I toured the movie around and spoke to to uh, audiences following the movie. I had a number of times, you know, definitely people were Metallica fans and fans of Exodus and fans of the music. But 
people would say, I had no idea that Kirk Hammett was so instrumental. And I think that's a beautiful part of the movie because Kirk is, um, you know, definitely a, a more quiet guy and humble in his own way. He, he, he just doesn't sit there and like, like talk about this stuff in, in that way. He just kind of gets out and does this great job of playing music. But what I wanted people to understand, and that's why the documentary, the story of the documentary starts in around 1979 and 80, is that Kirk Hammett, without, he didn't even know Lars and James at that time. Hmm. He was already the guy who was putting together bands. His, his musical ear was such that he was listening to harder and harder music and playing it faster. So, you know, he was very instrumental in, in really the creation of thrash metal and what the sound of thrash metal is. You know, and this is all before he ever met Lars and James. Lars and James come to town. They, you know, they're with this, you know, killer outfit called Metallica. But at that point, Metallica was still an L.A. band. And, um, you know, you have what you really have is Kirk watching Metallica and going, wow, these guys are great. You know, and, and, and being even on the same bill with Metallica. And so it's it's really cool to see this kind of mix of of people coming together and, and throw into that, by the way, <laughs> you know, no small feat is you have the, the, the mighty Cliff Burton, of mm. course. And I mean, you've got an amazing amount of talent in the Bay area. Uh, and all these guys are hanging around together. So it's, yeah. So it, it, certainly Kirk was one of the movers and shakers. And I just think as Metallica has gone on, um, you know, of course, you know, you always hear from Lars in that band and, and, you know, James Hetfield's the front man. So, you know, he's, uh, you know, obviously a voice of the band and right there in the middle. Yeah. You've always had Kirk Hammett and what an amazing contribution he's made to the, to, to Metallica and to the whole movement. So it's great that the movie brings that out. One of the most bigger than life personalities, part of that scene at the time was Paul Bailoff, who was an on and off mm-hmm. singer for Exodus, but he was especially there at the beginning. Um, he had a, a saying that was that a lot of people in the documentary will brought up will bring up now and again. Um, all poses must die. Um, <laughs> now, you know, I'm sure a lot of the guys look back at that and, and just see it as kind of like a youthful, kind of fanatical kind of thing. You're part of a scene, blah blah blah, all that kind of stuff. But how much mm-hmm. of that of that um, talks about also the credibility? Um, of being a musician, credibility about being an artist at that time as well. Even though these guys were, you know, starting off with their mm-hmm. instruments and are playing a different style of music, they were very much talking about real issues. They took their playing seriously. They were very serious about their music. Um, mm-hmm. How much did credibility really come into forming this scene and also just taking their stuff, you know, really seriously? And, and from that context, we have like four, five, or six bands that are still around today doing what they do. Yes. Well, it's funny. First, a a little story. Um, When I sat down to interview Kirk, um, the the first thing he said was like, as I'm rolling up, you know, slating up camera is like, he goes, hold, hold, you know, I've started to pose my first question. And the first thing he he said was, well, well, hold up. He goes, before you get started, I want to say posers must die. And he points (laughs) at the camera. And so it was such a great, like, you know, you know, off the cuff thing that we used it to start the trailer of the movie. And ultimately, you know, it begins the, the credit sequence of the movie. Um, something like that is just great, but everybody remembers Paul Bailoff for words like that, for, for his dedication to heavy metal and with, with a, a good deal of a sense of humor. Um, he never actually killed a poser, but he, 
you know, he was a threatening figure in that way. But I think it, what it really speaks to is something a little more serious, which was, yes, they were very serious about their music. And it was at that time they felt it was us against the world kind of mentality. Um, thrash music, you know, there was no radio stations that would play them other than, you know, like KUSF, which was a college station. Um, but it was, it was really like they were kind of like the, the, the outsiders. So they form their own kind of community. And so when you, when you do that, I think you very much feel like you, it's you against the world, by the way, I think the punk community had the same kind of thing on their own thing, which also speaks to the richness of the Bay area that, that at the same time you have a punk movement going on, like in the same kind of Bay area go uh, happening. And, occasionally there'd be crossover but that's how you know kind of rich the bay area was in musicianship and in like people who wanted to hear new music that another scene could be happening at that same time and there probably were some others as well that i don't even know about so um yeah but poses must die was like kind of the battle cry for those guys and uh they seem to have a lot of fun with it um as as Gary Holt says again in the movies, he just always says such great things. And he goes, uh, he goes, well, you know, if there was poses in the crowd, uh, they were worried that night, you know. <laughs> so, so uh, that's kind of part of it. That's part of the lure of the of the Bay Area, the thrash scene, particularly when it comes to Paul Bailoff, uh, who was a larger than life character. Um, you also talk um, feature different people in it that a lot of everyone might not know about unlikely mm-hmm. allies to these kids to this scene mm-hmm. one of them that really kind of stuck out to me was debbie abono um mm-hmm. i think at that time she must have been her in her 50s yes. she was a music manager she took on like the 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 more heavier extreme end of the thrash metal we're talking about like forbidden evil and such and it's quite funny mm-hmm. actually looking at um <laughs> the, the story about her her van and how the guys kind of trashed it and their remorse about yep. it as well and but um yep. she just was such an unlikely person to like to to help out these kids what was it about her and her personality that really took these kids it was a lot of a lot of these a lot of these bands like their band members at that time i think um uh, gary holt mentioned uh, something about like they practically came from the ghetto they had nothing which is why they picked up the instruments in the first place so i guess mm-hmm. you could say she was, she was something of a mother figure to the whole scene Yes. Um, Debbie Abono. Uh, I've, I'd never met Debbie. Um, she passed away approximately 10 years ago. But, um, you know, as I started to study the story of this Bay Area scene, it, it was very apparent that it was it was a very rich story, much beyond even just the music. And so Debbie Abono was one of those uh, fascinating characters. Um, She's there in the photographs. She's obviously older than than everybody. I mean, she looks like somebody's mom, and yeah. she indeed is a mom. And but it's like, who is this lady? That what is she doing? And then what you find out very quickly is that she was absolutely beloved by everybody. Uh, she she was you know described as the den mother of the scene, and she took care of of uh, these young people, as Alex Skolnick puts it. Um, you know, a lot of people would demonize the youth at that time. There was, uh, they were, you know, it, it, it was looked upon as, as, uh, you know, maybe the music is satanic or it's like whatever the kids are up to. It's like, like delinquency or something. And she had this much broader view, a beautiful view where she, she looked at them as like just kids just trying to, you know, express themselves. And, uh, so 
as people said, the, you know, the parties would be at Debbie's house. She would have people at her, all these people could like stay over at her house rather than be out in the street and everything. And she took care of them. Um, she later also became a manager of, uh, one of the hardest bands, which is, you know, forbidden evil and possessed. Mm. And, uh, and she, she managed a number of bands and, you know, the, the stories are just amazing that she like went in a van across the country with these bands and, you know, uh, just de dealing with, with a bunch of, uh, you know, adolescent, uh, kids who were, were, you know, just raging and she could handle it. And, uh, you know, I, I heard that she broke up fights at clubs and stuff. I mean, she would wade into it. So this amazing lady that everybody really remembers very fondly. And the other person that I felt was also a, you know, an amazing person who, really helped the scene and, and, and an unlikely hero of the scene was a man named Wes Robinson. Yes. And, uh, his, Wes's, uh, daughter, uh, all these people are deceased now. So Wes's daughter spoke for him as well as, uh, what for, for Debbie Abono, uh, all three of her kids spoke, uh, for her. Um, in Wes's case, Wes was a, um, a jazz aficionado who ran, uh, probably the most important club of of the Bay Area thrash scene, which is called Ruthie's Inn. It, it no longer exists, but at the time, it was like the the most the, the club. It was like what CBGBs might be to New York punk scene. Uh, Ruthie's Inn was like ground zero for the for this thrash metal movement. West didn't own the club, but he ran the club, and you know he was like a, a jazz fan. But he heard and saw something in these young people that. I think he identified with at least the, the fact that the music was on the edge the way it was and w would just start booking thrash metal bands. And so uh, really everybody played through Ruthie's Inn um, and the stories are legendary because the, the mosh pits were insane and the, the energy and everything. And it was just um, important. As I said, it, a scene can only happen if they're supporters of the scene. Yeah. That's why it was so important to me not just to in interview the musicians who obviously played there. Um, their their work is on record, but what's less recorded is is the the people that actually supported the scene. At least now it's at least recorded, and Wes Robinson's one of those people. Uh, Debbie Bono and certainly uh, many of the other uh, folks who attended the shows and supported the bands in that way. You are, of course, from New York, Brooklyn, as you as you mm -hmm. said before, Brooklyn-born. In your documentary, uh, Murder in the Front Row, there are some people outside of the um, mm -hmm. Bay Area scene. In there, Charlie Bernati of uh, Anthrax, uh, the most uh, most notable. Um, mm -hmm. Could you foresee delving into this material again, but this time focusing on the New York thrash scene? I mean, you have Anthrax, you have uh, Nuclear Assault. Mm -hmm. You could even mm -hmm. throw in like uh, a later day Carnivore in there. You can uh, Metal Blade yeah. Records was situated there as well, and that's when um, yeah. the, the infamous firing of Dave Mustaine took place up there when uh, the, they, they made a big move. I mean, there's a story there to be told as well. Has that ever crossed your mind as well to kind of continue this thrash metal journey, but in a different part of America? Yeah. Um, here's the thing: what what you start to find out when you when you delve into this thrash metal scene is that it it's actually um, it's so rich in content that I had a hard time confining it to um, the 90 minutes that the movie runs. Mm. And indeed, on the DVD we put out, we put out 90 more minutes of, of you know, kind of outtakes and stuff, so, you know, equal with the running time of the actual movie. Um, so I had a ton of material. Uh, I could have told 
you know, if I wanted to keep going, I mean, there, there's, there's tons of, of more stories to tell. I stopped at about 1986, but the, the, the story goes on both on the East Coast and the West Coast and indeed around the world because by 1986, the music had started to really break out all around the world. Um, so my feeling was, yeah, I could definitely tell more stories, but I also, I, I think it's important if, for other filmmakers to also pick up and do some of these stories. And I'll say, for instance, not just a New York story, but Testament is a fascinating story that could be its own documentary yeah. as well as De death angels. The other one I think would be an amazing documentary. Uh, both those bands appear in our film, but in and of themselves, they're, they're amazing stories, uh, with amazing musicians involved. And, um, you know, I mean, if I get a chance, I'll certainly, I'll certainly try to continue. Um, I hope to continue telling stories with Metallica. Um, but there's really, there's plenty of, um, material, for a lot of filmmakers to dig in on on these uh, great heavy metal stories because they're all all amazing uh, stuff going on. And speaking of amazing stuff, Murder in the Front Row, for everyone out there listening, you have to check out this film. Um, if you go, there's actually a website, um, www.mitfr.com, and it has a, a section in the website where you can find out where in the world you are. You can locate the film, whether it's on DVD, on Amazon, or on Vimeo. I myself watched it on Amazon Prime. Um, I'm actually in the, in the process, so I think later today I'm going to order myself one of those DVDs and get it shipped to Australia <laughs> because I want to watch that extra material. Um, I love mm -hmm. this film so much, Adam. I think uh, just congratulations to you. I'm really making a um, not only a, a just a great documentary overall, but something that, like I said, I mentioned previously, the you know heavy metal documentaries. People make all sorts of them. We've watched all of them. This is, to me, one of the finest ones out there, and I had to talk to you about it, oh. and I thank you very much for joining me on the thank podcast you. to talk about it. Th thank you, Matt. That's that's very kind. I'm, I'm glad you said that, and I just want to make a shout-out that I, in 2004, I was in, in Sydney with Metallica at Big Day Out, and I had the – seriously, the greatest time in in your country and in your city, um, and I look forward to coming back there again someday because it was really the most fun uh, I've had. Uh, great times. It was so. great times. I was in the crowd, so <laughs> oh, was, then we passed each other at it, some point. In some point, definitely. I was uh, one of uh, that was like the second or third time I had saw him. I think that, um, so. Two thousand four would have been the Saint Anger. Um, uh, yeah, that's when Saint Anger came out and such. So yeah, that was a, a yep. great time and. Um, yeah, I absolutely mm -hmm. loved your documentary. So, Adam, I thank you very much. And everyone, please check it out, www.mitfr.com. Watch this movie, get into it, and then afterwards make sure you put on your Poses Must Die shirt and bang that head until it can't bang anymore. Adam, I thank All you right. very much for your time. Thanks, Matt. Have a great day. You too.